Now you should be on page three of the handout, continuing from the handout that we used last week, which begins with Mark. And Mark was in the news yesterday. Later this year, a fragment from a papyrus used to make a mummy mask will be published in Holland, which contains a fragment of the Gospel of Mark, so it is suggested. The date of this papyrus is between 80 and 90 A.D. If you would like to see the video presentation by the one who is going to present it, namely Craig Evans, professor of New Testament at Acadia Theological Seminary in Canada, you may use your browser and pluck in Washington Post plus Mummy. The story came up yesterday on their website. And it has an embedded video in which he takes three minutes to describe and also show you a picture of the papyrus fragment. Now, not only did they find in these uh, papyrus pieces a potential slice from the Gospel of Mark, but they also found classical Greek texts, possibly Homer, dating from 1st century A.D., found standard business texts, things which were the basis of a famous Greek lexicon called Moulton and Milligan, which was based upon everyday papyri, particularly Oxyrhynchi papyri, which were discovered in the early 20th century. In other words, there's a plethora of material, there's a plethora of types of text in these papyrus sheets that they found, which were used to compose a mummy mask for a dead person. That is, they were using the papyrus that they threw away, using the papyrus that they thought was trash, and they would, and they would take it and glue it together to form a mask for the departed loved one, and place it on over their face in a mummy style. Well, lo and behold, 2,000 years later, the archaeologists have learned how to dissolve this glue so that it does not destroy the ink on the papyrus. And so they can unwrap the layers of these mummy masks and see by holographic uh, uh, techniques, they can see the uh, writing on the fragments. Now, this doesn't surprise us as Bible believers because we believe that the Gospel of Mark, of course, was written sometime in the first century, and we have an authentic Greek copy or basically an authentic Greek copy which has been translated reliably into English in the second Gospel of our Bibles. But, as Evans points out, this discovery places us one step closer to the autographer. Now, it's not the autographer. That's not the original 
uh, version written by Mark. But we are that much closer to the autographer. <coughs> or we have a fragment which testifies to the proximity of the autographer. <coughs> this should cheer your hearts because not only does it confirm the reliability of what you believed about the testimony of the Bible, particularly the Gospel of Mark in this instance, but it also confirms its antiquity. The closer we get to the origin of the authorial document, the more uh, we d demonstrate the reliable antiquity of the Old Testament. It's not an invention. This is not the Tubingen school where it was invented in the second century or something like that. And consequently, <clears throat> does confirm or uh, uh, <clears throat> support our confidence in the reliability not only of the writing, but the transmission of the Bible. <clears throat> All right, one other point here. You should be aware that the process of discovering these texts have already, has already been attacked. Now, you might be surprised at why there are, shall we say, cultural liberals attacking these discoveries. Well, because those cultural liberals aren't interested in supporting the reliability of the Bible. And so, therefore, they're saying you're simply exploiting this for Christian apologetic purposes. And that's transgressing on the cultural heritage of the mummies. The mummies need to be left alone. You don't dare teach, touch the mummies, or the daddies might get mad. Now, of course, I'm being a bit satirical here, but it was no sooner off the press than Bart Ehrman launched an attack upon this process of dissolving these uh, papyri and reading them. Bart Ehrman, who happens to be one of the greatest uh, liberal uh, advocates of the unreliability of the Bible, and that the documents of the New Testament have been reconstructed from various levels of varieties of Christianity and even non-Christianity. And he goes all over the country. You can look him up on PBS goes all over the country and spouts off this nonsense. And Craig Evans, who discovered this fragment, Craig Evans has actually engaged him in a public debate on the reliability of the New Testament documents. All right, so we're looking at Mark by way of Philemon. I want you to know that current events are leading you to think about Mark as well. You see, I'm relevant All right, so uh, to the sheets, and let's begin with our examination of Mark with respect to his occurrence in the Bible. First of all, what is his other name, and how do you know? Anyone just spit it out. John. His other name is John, and how do you know? Very good. Let's turn back to Acts chapter 12, because we want to keep our finger in there for a few moments. Acts 12, verse 12, which also provides the name of his mother. And what was the name of his mother? Mary, what was the name of his mother? 
That was a freebie. Okay. All right, you'll see it in the 12th verse as well. Now, you also notice in verse 25 that his name is listed once more as John. So, John Mark. And where does mother and son live? In Jerusalem. Okay? Was she a Christian? How do you know? Very good. What were they doing in her home as they were gathering? They were praying, having a prayer meeting. You don't have a prayer meeting in a non-Christian home unless it's a Jewish home, but not in terms of this story, not in terms of this record. So we know that she is a Christian because of the prayer meeting, and as Kay pointed out, the assembly. But she is a Jewish Christian. She's a Jewish Christian in Jerusalem. So this is a Jewish conversion, a conversion from Judaism into Christianity. Now, something else we note about the possibility of this family background from verse 13. What does verse 13 tell you in terms of additional information about this family? Or does it tell you anything in addition? Nancy? Um, well, it says that um, when he knocked at the door of the gateway, so there must have been, there was a servant girl that entered the door, so they must have had some sort of wealth uh, because they had servant girl and they had a gateway. Very good, very good. That's exactly what that verse suggests. Now, it doesn't prove it, but it does suggest that because it's a gated home, that suggests some some wealth. And that they had a servant that also supports that observation. So this is, shall we say, a fairly wealthy or at least an above middle class uh, uh, home. And consequently, there is uh, the, the facility to host a large gathering they have a large enough facility to, uh, to, to, to have this prayer meeting. All right. So this is a well-to-do Jewish Christian family, mother and son. All right. Now, who is Mark's cousin? Barnabas. And how do you know that? Mark Travis. I don't know. You got the right answer, but now we need to know how you know you got the right answer. Okay? Colossians 4.10. Colossians 4.10, where he is called his cousin. All right, now. Yes, go ahead. Was John the Baptist his cousin too? Not that I know of. Mark isn't the brother of Jesus? No. This is John Mark. He's got two names. He's called John Mark. And he's not related to Jesus uh, by blood or anything like that. Yes, Ben? May I back up and ask a question? Sure. When I was looking up to try to figure out Mark, 
where his mother lived, uh, I came up with the idea that she lives in Bethany. Because isn't that the house where it's commonly understood that the Lord's Supper was served in a large upper room? Um, well, I have never thought about that, to be honest with you. Uh, let me go back to Acts 12 and see um, what our context is there. All of my sources have suggested that it's Jerusalem. Okay, um, take a look at verse 25. In Acts 12, which provides a suggestion as to where Barnabas and Saul returned from or to, depending upon the translation of the manuscript there, and had with them uh, John, who was called Mark. Uh, <clears throat> that's probably the best I can do at this point, Ben, uh, to satisfy your suggestion, and I'm willing to reconsider it. So uh, give me your data at the break, and I'll pursue it. All right, now, Mark goes along with Paul and Barnabas on their what missionary journey? Abigail? On the first, on the first missionary journey. And where did they begin, Abigail? No, not at Antioch. That was a trick question. Where did they begin? Um. No. Antioch is close. No. They, be they began in Seleucia. Okay? Why did they begin in Seleucia? Because you can't really begin in Antioch. You can't begin the journey in Antioch. You don't get on the boat until you go down the river to Seleucia. In order to get a boat the size that could take them across the portion of the Mediterranean, they had to go to Seleucia because they could not get that size of a ship up the river to Antioch. So... Yeah, you could say that. <laughs> but you'll notice that the text says, I think, they departed from Seleucia. So, <laughs> so that, that, that's the trick to the question. You, yes, they were sent away from Antioch. <clears throat> that is true. Well, <clears throat> all right. <laughs> you keep digging your heels in. <laughs> yes, but you see, I have absolute veto power. I've been taught well. Now, back to you, Abigail. Where were they sailing? Um, they sailed to Cyprus. They sailed to Cyprus. Now, as a footnote, who is important to us as Reformed Christians supportive of missions who originated in Cyprus. Mark, 
Murph. Murph. Who, who was born there? Go ahead, Bob. I don't know his name. Yeah, I think you said it a couple weeks ago. Victor Atala. Yeah, Victor Atala. Victor Atala actually has his headquarters in Larnaca. So Murph is headquartered out of that island. And uh, he, of course, is very familiar with that part of the world. And so we realize that even in our uh, OP circles, we have an attachment still to Cyprus and to the work of the Mideastern Reformed Fellowship, which is broadcasting the gospel to many of the Middle Eastern uh, nations in Arabic and the other languages of that region. It's a wonderful uh, work. It's a wonderful witness. It's a wonderful way to communicate the love of Jesus Christ to that region of the world. Anyway, just to keep that in mind, uh, Paul goes there, and in some ways we're still going there or going forth from there. All right, now they sailed where? Perga. To Perga, or, now here I'll lie, you have two answers. Pamphylia. Or Pamphylia, yes. Well, now you have two answers on Seleucia, even though you're pressing me to the wall. But you see, once again, see, I have absolute veto power. Two answers are possible for this. Only one answer for the other one. I'm just kidding you. <clears throat> All right, now Mark left them here and returned where? This is another uh, reason that we suggest that this is where he was from, okay? He returned to Jerusalem. He returned to Jerusalem, as you'll see from Acts 13, verse 13, which would suggest he went back home. All right, now here comes the argument as to why. <clears throat> Uh, this is a very famous conundrum, all kinds of suggestions about why he left, why he went back, okay? What would you suggest? After all, you may as well join the crowd. <laughs> Randy, you've got your hand up. I'm going I'm to defer to the lady first. Okay, a suggestion is made. He's been too young and inexperienced. Thank you, Kay. Randy? I don't know how I got this, but Paul asked him to because Mark left him at Pamphylia. He asked him to leave at Pamphylia? No, he asked him to go back to Jerusalem because Mark left him at Pamphylia. Well, what moved? Oh, so you're saying Paul asked him to go back. Yeah. So he didn't go back on his own. Paul asked him. But right. Paul kicked him out. Because Mark had left him earlier at Pamphylia. Well, that's the second missionary journey. We're talking about the first missionary. It's from the scripture somewhere. I don't know where. I shouldn't be writing this down. Oh, you're here. twisted up. I'm sorry. We've got to straighten you out. Okay. Scott? It was going to be a rocky climb. We did all the way to Antioch because they, they had a hard road to go. That's he doesn't want to climb up the road. Okay, Pete? Paul distrusted him. Acts 15, He distrusted him. Anybody else? Yes? He's a mama's boy. <laughs> Scott, you got, you, you got another one. Same with Pete, in a sense. Yeah, but Pete 
and he's reflecting back on Mark leaving. Not he didn't leave because Paul distressed him. I don't think he, Paul distressed him because he left the work. And so there was some aspect of where he was not willing to suffer for the gospel. And he's given an example. I like this when one professor corrects another. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> there it. No. no. Was there anybody else besides Randy? Okay, go ahead. Vacillation, that he couldn't make a decision. He didn't. Oh, vacillation. Vacillation, he just went back and forth. Okay. He couldn't make a decision, so Paul made it for him. Okay. Nancy? Well, I think think Mark was probably upset for the fact that there was a dispute between Paul and Barnabas. We should go with who? Right now, on the first journey? Oh, wait a minute. I'm sorry. I'm trying to read this. Okay. Um, Not on the first journey. Randy? I'm going to defend. I got my defense of my positions right there. 15. 36 to 30. 15, 18. Okay, but what? What? 15, 18. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia. Okay, but we're asking why did he withdraw? We're not asking why Paul wouldn't take him on the second journey. We're asking why did he withdraw on the first journey? Oh! Now you see the light. But Mark, it's right before that. Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. Yeah, so but why, why did he, did he leave? Yeah, why did he leave them on the first journey? Yeah, but that's the second one. That's not set up. Right. 13 is the first journey. 15 is the second journey. Can we get you straightened out? But when Mark returned to Jerusalem... That's the second journey, and the question is right after that. Um, no, I'm still on. I'm still on Perga and Pamphylia. Okay. Okay. We really don't know. <clears throat> Somebody else had their hand up. Uh, Art, then I'll get to the. Oh, uh, you know, it's not unusual. A young person tries something new. He's, he's in at it for a while. I don't really like this that much. He changes his mind. Tenderfoot, and he decides he's had enough. Go ahead, Dick. It appeared to happen right after the uh, proconsul was uh, converted, and he may have a trouble. Hang up was Jewish versus a uh, Gentile conversion. Now oh, that's an interesting observation. Yeah, that's an interesting one. That's quite intriguing. I don't agree with it, but at least it makes me. <laughs> it makes me think. <laughs> All right, now back to what Pete said, which is absolutely right. We really don't know because the text doesn't tell us. So we're trying to infer from this breach that arises uh, what led him to uh, go back home. And all of the things that you have suggested have been suggested by others, including uh, some pretty uh, sophisticated scholars. So there is no solution to this, and everybody's guess is as good as another until uh, until we sing praises and glory and we can ask him ourselves. All right, now... What effect did this have later on? Well, somewhere it says the young man recovered himself. So what effect did this have? Now, later on, we want want to move now to chapter 15. That's when Paul said Marty's had your big fight. Marty, okay. All right, where do we find this? Fifteen thirty-six. Okay, so let's turn to fifteen thirty-six. Acts fifteen thirty-six. 
And let's read it. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Okay, now I'm going to ask Art to read verse 37. I'm going to ask uh, individuals to read one verse at a time. Art, next verse. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with him. Verse 38, Bob. But Paul did not think it wise to take him, because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. Okay, 39. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. Verse 40, Pam. And Paul chose Silas and departed, being recommended. By the brethren unto the grace of God. And Nancy, verse 41, please. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Thanks very much. Now, the key verse, of course, here is verse 38, where Paul refuses to take Mark on that second missionary journey and selects Silas, insisting that. He and Silas go overland to Asia Minor, and in verse 41, they go through Cilicia. What town is in Cilicia? Where was Paul born? Tarsus. So he's going to his home country, his home region. Cilicia is the region around Tarsus. All right. And Barnabas then takes his cousin, Mark and returns on the trek of the first missionary journey to Cyprus. So we have a division within the apostolic band. We have a division according to verse 38, and I like the way Bob read this verse, because Mark had deserted them. This is a very strong Greek word, and that's the best translation of it. Not that he had departed, not that he had abandoned, but he had actually deserted them. All right. Paul, at this point, doesn't trust him to go on with him again. So he takes a different road. Barnabas is willing because of the blood relationship and also because of the familiarity with Cyprus to go back and encourage the work that had been begun there on the first missionary journey. Beyond that, we do not know whether Barnabas and Mark went any further. That is, did did Barnabas attempt to take him and retrace the steps to Perga and Pamphylia? We don't know. The record is silent. All right, so this breach uh, causes a division. Was it ever reconciled? Were Paul and Mark in particular ever reconciled? Go ahead, okay. But before you get to that, okay. part, this breach was actually wonderful because now you had two groups going out rather than just one. That is true. This is a case where God uses this division for his own glory and the advancement of the gospel. But when we're talking about the breach itself, okay, this is this is sad. This is really quite tragic. Okay? So we understand that there is this occasional discord in the apostolic age. You know, look at Peter and Paul at Galatia. This great clash between them with the Judaizers in Galatia. All right. Now, how do you know? Okay, so was this um, relationship ever reconciled? 
and how do you know? Philippians 24, Colossians 4, 10, 2 Timothy 4, 11. Very good. Particularly from Philemon, because that's the subject of our study. From Philemon, verse 24, we know that they were reconciled because Paul commends Mark and asks that he... Uh, <clears throat> and greets Mark uh, as he does the others at the end of the chapter. All right, but that's also true, as Pete mentioned, in Colossians 4.10 and 2 Timothy 4.11, if you didn't get those passages to support that answer. Now, with which disciple of Jesus is Mark associated? Peter, and how do you know? What verse? Verse 13. And what does Peter say about Mark in that verse? He calls him my son. Does that mean that he was literally his son? No. No. It's his son in the faith. All right, now, let's go back to Mark chapter 14 for a moment. Was Peter married? Yes, Peter was married. Why do you know? How do you know he's not his son? Mm, just because I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't cut it with me. Right? <laughs> <laughs> now, no, nobody has ever suggested. No, no credible historian has ever suggested that Mark was uh, Peter's uh, uh, physical son, biological son. That uh, this is a this is the language of uh, spiritual relationship. All right, back to Mark 14, verses 50 to 51. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, verses 50 and 51. I want to draw your attention to other conjunctions between Peter and Mark. Now, this is the arrest scene in the second Gospel. And in this arrest scene, verses 50 and 51 of chapter 14, Jesus is left and all his disciples flee. And in verse 51 is this mysterious uh, text which indicates that a certain young man who was following him, Jesus, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, they seized and he left the linen sheet and escaped naked. But notice... Jesus was led to the high priest, verse 53, verse 54, and Peter followed him at a distance. The conjunction in Mark's gospel between this mysterious, unidentified young man who flees at the arrest of Jesus when his own garment is seized, even fleeing naked from the site. And next to him, in the narrative, Peter's name is mentioned. The conjunction, then, of Peter and Mark, potentially, conjunction of the mysterious young man and Peter in the Gospel of Mark. All right, now let's go back to Acts chapter 12. I'm looking at conjunctions again. That is, where Peter and Mark appear together. Yes, go ahead. Go ahead, Bob. Since this was a linen garment that he was wearing, it was, it was linen, sort of a high-class garment? Yes, good point. It, it, it could have been fairly expensive. 
his status. Exactly. Would support the status of wealth or at least uh, upper class that we pointed out earlier. Very good. Thank you. Fisherman's son as a result? Is that what? He's not a fisherman's son as a result. He's not a fisherman's son, no. Yeah, that's why Peter wouldn't be his father because Peter wasn't rich, probably. One reason. Possibly. So you're just you're just supporting my you know dogmatic statement that I know he wasn't his biological. Yeah, I'm trying to give you some. Thank you very much. Backup on that, all right? Other than your own authority. I'm happy to have you all come to my aid. All right, can we go back to chapter 12? Yes. <laughs> Thank you. All right, now in that 12th chapter, which we looked at earlier, they're having their prayer meeting, verse 12 and 13. It was a knock on the door. <clears throat> Servant girl named Rhoda came to the gate, and who was at the gate? Peter. Peter. All right, so the conjunction of Mark and Peter in Acts chapter 12, the potential conjunction and the conjunction of Mark and Peter in 1 Peter 5.13, the potential conjunction of Mark and Peter in uh, Mark 14, the mysterious young man, and Peter at the trial of Jesus. But I want you to notice one more thing about the Gospel of Mark. So go back to Mark's Gospel to the 16th chapter. And I'd like to point out something that Randy Berquist, pastor at Emmanuel O.P. in Kent, pointed out to me just last week. I was quite impressed by it, and so I'll share it with you as well. Randy derived it from some reading he was doing, and so he passed it on to me, and I found it quite intriguing. In Mark chapter 16, verse 7, who is the last disciple to be named in this gospel? Now, I'm assuming that you agree with me that everything from verse 9 on is not authentic to Mark's gospel. The gospel ends in verse 8. <clears throat> I'm not going to take the time to prove that tonight, but nonetheless, I trust that you'll agree that that, is the greatest, that has the greatest textual support. So, <clears throat> uh, we'll say that the gospel ends in verse 8. Who is the last disciple to be named in the gospel in verse 7? Peter. Peter is the last disciple named in Mark's gospel. Let's go back to chapter 1. And let's ask a question, who is the first disciple named in Mark's gospel? Verse 16 of chapter 1. I'm going to guess Peter without even looking. Notice, notice how he's referred to in that verse, though. Simon. Of course, we know that Simon is also called Peter in the list of the disciples. So this is Peter. So he begins his gospel with the Jewish name of his father in the faith. Simon, Shimon. He ends the gospel with the Greek name of his spiritual father in the faith. Petros, Peter. He brackets his gospel with the name Simon Peter. He places an inclusio of Peter around this gospel. And in this gospel, Peter is a chief character. 
He's a chief, I've got my foot in my mouth character. But he is a chief character. And it is the tradition of the early church that the second gospel, the gospel according to Mark, is actually the gospel of Peter. That is, the gospel that Peter is behind. It's the shortest. And it's, in many ways, uncomplimentary to Peter, but it tells the truth about Peter's career. Leaving at the end of the gospel, Peter meeting Jesus in Galilee after the resurrection and therefore endorsing the role of Peter's transformation following his following Christ's appearance to him following his resurrection from the dead. That's what changes Peter. The appearance of the risen Christ in Galilee, or if not before. All right, so when you add this all up, these uh, places where Peter and Mark seem to come together, it is a strong suggestion, in my opinion, that that certain mysterious unnamed young man in the arrest scene in chapter 14 of Mark's gospel is, in fact, Mark himself. That's his autobiographical introduction. He places himself in his narrative. Now, I can't prove that, but there is enough substantiating evidence, and I particularly like what uh, Randy Burke was pointed out, this inclusio feature, I particularly like that, because that gives me a literary paradigm with which to place within the framework the relationship between the author of the gospel, namely Mark, and the primary disciple in the gospel, namely Simon Peter. Yes, Pete. Where is that found in history? I know that, I remember it. It was there that, that Mark wrote for Peter. What, uh, was it Clement or who? Uh, no, it's not Clement of Rome. Um, Scott, can you help me? I just know it's in the, it's in the introductions, I know, but I don't know. They're, they're citing the early church. I don't know whether it's Papias or, or others, but, uh, send me an email. Harass, harass me about it, and, and I'll dig it out. Any other questions? All right, now, uh, in conclusion, I cannot prove that that certain young man in 14 is Mark, but I'm inclined to believe it is on the basis, once again, of how in this gospel Mark and Peter seem to be conjoined. It appears to be an expression of the relationship which they had, which resulted in the writing of this gospel. That Mark ends up in Rome as Peter ends up in Rome, and Peter relates to him the narrative events of the life of Jesus, and Mark records it as the gospel of the revelation of the work of Christ, as he calls the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I take that longer ending at the verse verse as authentic. Son of God. All right. Then we'll move on to Aristarchus. Well, actually, this is a good time to take a break before we move on to Aristarchus. So, stretch your legs, relax a little bit, and we'll return to... Finish examining these individuals.
All right, now, on the next page, which would be page four, and Aristarchus. From what country does he originate, and how do you know? Anybody? Macedonia. Macedonia. Acts 24, verse 4. Acts 24, 12. Acts 19.29 is one place. Where else? Acts 27 verse 2. All right, now where is Macedonia? North of the Aegean Sea. It's not in Asia. North of the Aegean Sea. North of the Aegean Sea. North of Greece. North of Greece, correct. Now, if you have your maps, you can see on the uh, second missionary journey map, it's it's probably northwest of the Aegean Sea, Randy. I'd say more northwest. But it's positioned on top of Greece, so it's in Europe. But it's interesting that uh, Aristarchus is attached to Paul. Uh, From what city did he originate? And how do you know that? Sandy? Let's let Sandy have this one. Which question? Where did... uh, Where did uh, Aristarchus come? And Ben says this, uh, Thessalonica. And what was the text? Oh, Acts 20, verse 4. Acts Acts 20, verse 4. Yes, very good. And also 27, 2. Very good. So I wanted to give give you a chance to redeem yourself on the the right citation. Now, Aristarchus accompanies Paul on which missionary journey? The third, from Acts 19.29, because Paul is uh, launched the third missionary journey at that point. <clears throat> then in Acts 27.2, <clears throat> we learn that he goes with Paul where? Rome. To Rome. From the first verse <clears throat> of chapter 27, <clears throat> the uh, country of Italy is mentioned in the previous chapter Paul had appealed to Caesar, which meant that he had the right as a Roman citizen to go before the emperor. So he's on his way to Rome in 27.2. Now, in Colossians 4, we learn that he is what? He's a fellow prisoner with Paul. And in Philemon, he's described as what? A fellow laborer or fellow worker. Now notice where else we had fellow worker in this epistle to Philemon. Do you remember? In the greeting. Very good. Who is labeled a fellow worker? Philemon. Philemon himself. Oh, you will notice... Uh, that we have fellow worker at the beginning of this letter. 
And we have fellow worker at the end of this letter. What do we call that? And inclusive. Okay, very good. So keep that in mind because the next challenge before us is to deal with the structure of this letter. And we will do that next time. We'll do it in two stages. I will uh, present to you a simpler outline and then I will present a more complex outline of this letter. Now, I'm not asking you to do any homework ahead of time, uh, so that's the reason I didn't give you a handout. I'm not giving you a handout to take home. <clears throat> but just so you will know what the next stage <clears throat> of our consideration will be, we're going <clears throat> to try to assess the <clears throat> uh, comprehensive nature of this letter in terms of its structural integrity. All right. <clears throat> any questions about Aristarchus? Yes, got it. He goes with Paul in Acts 27 too. And where is he actually mentioned? You said 1927 or something like that that the missionary committee starts. Is he mentioned in that context somewhere? Yes, in 27.2 he's mentioned by name. Acts 27, okay. Acts 27, okay. I was thinking you were including the week, okay. Now we come to Demas, who is where, according to this epistle? He is with Paul in Ben? In Rome. And we know that from the 24th verse of this letter. All right, now this is also confirmed not only by the remark of Paul here in Philemon 24, it's also confirmed where else? 2 Timothy 4.10, he is with Paul. Colossians 4.14. All right, now we need to read these texts. So, Colossians 4.14. If anyone has it, let's read it out. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Demas sends greetings to the Colossians along with Paul. So, the fact that uh, he is with Paul in Rome, in Philemon, he's also with Paul In Rome, when Paul writes Colossians, these are two prison epistles. Demas is with Paul in his imprisonment. Now, Abigail, you're on. What about 2 Timothy? Let's have you read the passage. What verses are you citing? Um, 2 Timothy 4.10. Let's have you read verse 11 as well. Go ahead. Thank you very much. All right, now, what has happened in 2 Timothy 4.10? Abigail, you read the text. What's happened? Demas has deserted them. 
he has been deserted by Demas, even as he was deserted by John Mark. Now, the Greek word is not the same, but the nuance is identical. Now, let's notice something about this passage. Who is listed with Demas in Philemon 24? Keep your finger back there in Philemon 24 as you keep your finger in Second uh, Timothy uh, 4. <coughs> Who's listed with Demas? Nancy? Luke. Luke, okay. All right, now let's go back to Colossians 4, 14. Who's listed with Demas in Colossians 4, 14? Luke. Luke. Who is listed with Demas in Second Timothy 4, 10 and 11. Luke. Not Luke. Okay? In other words, Demas has abandoned Paul and only Luke is left. So Demas has left Luke. Notice the conjunctions then. <clears throat> Demas is mentioned with Luke together in Philemon 24 and Colossians 4.14. He is not mentioned with Luke. That is, their names occur, but he is not with him. They are separated. He is separated from Luke as he is separated from Paul. The rift, then, is more emphatic when you realize the, shall we say, the personal relational construction. Now, why do I emphasize it? Because there are those who do not believe that Demas apostatized. The very structure of his absence from Paul and Luke here in 2 Timothy 4 is proof positive that he apostatized. So, the literary conjunction, okay, the literary union, the relationship between Luke, Demas, and Paul in Philemon and Colossians, is not present in 2 Timothy 4, which means there is a subsequent phase in the biography and the career of Demas, Paul, and Luke. All right, now let's go back to that 2 Timothy 4 passage, and let's back up a little bit. Let's back up in the text to verse 8. Paul says to Timothy, In the future there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who loved his appearing. The Greek word is epiphania, the epiphany of Christ, his appearing. Now, this action of, of Demas in loving this present world or this now eon, this now world, <clears throat> is in direct repudiation of Paul, <clears throat> excuse me, Paul indicating <clears throat> his love of the epiphany, the, the future world. That is the world of Christ's magnificent glory as he comes in triumph at the end of the age. Demas does not love that. Demas is in contrast to those who love that appearing. 
He loves this world. He does not love the appearing of that world. He has abandoned the faith that he professed because he loves the eon of the present. He has absolutized the narcissistic present. He is a perfect, uh, he is a perfect sinner. He loves the world and the now of the world. He will not delay himself. He will not, I should say, he will not portray himself as holding on to the future. That the future is better than the present. He is in essence a personal hedonist. In spite of all that he had been exposed to, in spite of all the help that he had given, he nonetheless abandons it. He deserts it. He spurns it. He rejects it. For the present age, for the now time, not the not yet time. For the present, not the future. For the temporal, not the eternal. Demas did apostatize. And that's the reason that when we described these names last week, I used the term ostensibly in Christ. Ostensibly in Christ. Because Demas was ostensibly in Christ but proved at the end of his career that he had never been in Christ. He had never been joined to him. He had never given up Christ in terms of a means of greasing his way through the present age. Whatever those motivations may have been, namely prestige, namely world stage, namely on a great tour, namely great traveler, namely being looked up to by people in congregations all over Asia and Europe. We don't know what the particular thing that juiced his vibes was, but nonetheless, whatever it was, it had to do with this world, this present age, had nothing to do with the world to come. He did not love the promise of that appearing. He would not lose his life in order to gain that appearing. He absolutized his life in the here and now. He's a perfect sinner. He does exactly what sinners do. They live for now. They don't live for glory and for eternity, at least those who aren't regenerated. All right, so did this transformation in Demas happened before or after Paul wrote Philemon? Afterwards. Obviously afterwards. So before, when he writes Philemon in Colossians, simpatico. Okay? Afterwards, no. He's deserted me. Relationship broken. He's abandoned the faith. He's abandoned his profession of the faith. He's apostatized. Now, this is tragic, but we all know it from experience. We know those who have professed Christian faith. We know those who have gone very far in Christian understanding and learning, and they have flat out apostatized. We know it happens. There was no root of regeneration in them in the first place. Those who are born again 
Do not apostatize. Those who are sincerely transformed by the Holy Spirit and the love of Christ Jesus have been given a new heart. A heart which loves the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a heart that loves being portrayed as a Christian. It's a heart which loves being a Christian. It is a lifestyle. It is a style of heartfelt devotion, love, and delight. Demas didn't have it. We've known people that appeared to have it, but didn't have it because they apostatized and kicked it over, threw it completely over. Demas is an example of a New Testament person that did that. And so we know it happens. All right, now, the answer to that last question is he's called a fellow worker here, and he sends greetings with Luke in Colossians 4. So we know that there was still this bond of relationship before 2 Timothy 4. This is another reason why the pastoral epistles have to be dated after Paul's first imprisonment in Rome. You cannot explain this change in Demas if you argue that Paul wrote the pastorals before his imprisonment. This is material, this is information, this is uh, additional relationships which occur after he's released from that first Roman imprisonment and probably goes on that missionary trip to Spain and comes back and is arrested and executed later. That's the reconstruction, which fits the pastorals into the Pauline chronology in a way which justifies this change in Demas's behavior. Otherwise, you've got a problem. Otherwise, you've got Demas apostatizing sometime between when he first comes in conjunction with Paul and sometimes and, and somewhere else. Some unknown uh, uh, period in Paul's life or career. Just doesn't fit. This is not the only reason to say that the pastorals are after the first imprisonment. There are other uh, uh, considerations uh, to, be, uh, to be considered as well. But nonetheless... Here's an example of why we would argue strongly that the pastoral epistles are the last things that the Apostle Paul wrote after he had been released from the imprisonment that takes place at the end of the book of Acts and is reflected in the prison epistles of his corpus. Any question? All right, now that brings us to Luke. Okay, what was Luke's occupation? He was a doctor. The beloved physician, as Sir William Ramsey called him uh, at the turn of the 20th century, Sir William Ramsey, who wrote a great book on uh, Paul's missionary journeys, as he himself, that is, Sir William himself, walked all over Asia Minor, walked all over Turkey, retracing the steps of the Apostle Paul. All right, now, how do you know that he was a physician? And uh, once again, Kay, I'll give you a chance for that one because you actually read it. I've written down Colossians 4.14. Colossians 4.14. And in the old translation, the beloved physician. Okay, now, when did Luke first come into contact with Paul? What missionary journey? 
Probably the second missionary journey. How do you know that? Well, I reason this way that Luke wrote the book of Acts and he begins to use the pronoun we in Acts 16. Which verse? Uh, You're doing well, Ben. Verse 10. Yes. Okay, let's take a look at that. Acts chapter 16, verse 10. As a result of the Macedonian call, remember, Paul had gone into Asia Minor, and the angel of the Lord called him to come over to Macedonia. And as a result of that Macedonian call, in verse 10, the writer says, when he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia. That is the first place in the book of Acts where that first person plural pronoun is used about those who are in accompaniment with Paul. We went further. It suggests then that Luke comes uh, on board the missionary uh, enterprise of Paul at that point in his second missionary Adventure. So the we sections of uh, the book of Acts, the companion of Paul, from then on, writes in the plural, first person plural. Not he, third person singular, not they, but we. Paul and Luke together. All right, so this is, as we pointed out, the second missionary journey, and he would also go with Paul on the third missionary journey. And where else does Luke accompany the Apostle Paul? To Rome. Rome. He goes on to Rome from Acts 27 on to the end of the book of Acts. Now, let's take a look at Colossians 4.11 for a moment, because I want to say a little more about Luke. If we begin with Acts or Colossians 4.10, you will notice these names that we've already discussed. They're familiar to you. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings. Also, Barnabas's cousin Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who's called Justice. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision. And they have proved to be an encouragement to me. The names then in verse 10 and 11 are who? Are what ethnic background? They are Jews. They are of the circumcision. All right, now, verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings. And then on to verse 14. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings. Also, Demas. One of your number, notice, verse 12. One of your number. If the names in verses 10 and 11 are Jews, what is the ethnic background of the names in 12 and 14? 
Gentiles. Gentiles, one of your number. He's writing to the Colossians. He's writing to the Gentiles in Colossae. All right, so here is a distinction between Luke and others. Luke is of the non-circumcision, even as Aristarchus and Mark are of the Jewish circumcision. Paul then distinguishes these Jewish Christians from these Gentile Christians, but in distinguishing them, he does not disunite them. They are united in Christ Jesus, where there's neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. Nonetheless, in terms of their background and their identity, he points this out in order to underscore the fact that the gospel is overcoming these ethnic divisions. There is neither Jew nor Greek in the kingdom of heaven. There is one body, that is the union in Christ Jesus. That is the ethnic background. We belong, body and soul, to our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what else can we know about Luke? Well, he was a physician. And that means that he had been well-educated. We also know from the writing that he has left behind. The longest gospel. The gospel of Luke is the longest gospel in terms of total words. The book of Acts is a lengthy record. Two major works of the New Testament scriptures inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by Luke. And written with a polished literary style and written with attention to historical detail. This also supports Luke's educational background. He was well-trained, well-educated, more broadly than just in medicine, but he was also trained in literary art and also in historical narrative. Luke acts go together. The two should not be separated. Now, for the sake of the sequence of the four Gospels, it's understandable why our canon places John between Luke and Acts. But nonetheless, in the manuscript tradition, Luke and Acts are conjoined. They are one work. It is the continuation of what he began, as he says at the beginning of Acts chapter 1. It's the continuation of what he began in uh, the first uh, verses of the third Gospel. So we shouldn't disjoin them. We should try to keep them together. It's the expanding, unfolding narrative of not only the life of Christ, but of the life of the body of Christ as it moves into the Jewish and Gentile world in the first century. Now, there are some scholars who have attempted to move Luke into the first missionary journey. They have suggested that he was trained at Antioch, and that's where he met Paul, and that's where he was converted and was actually in the background of that first missionary journey. The trouble with that suggestion is that there are no we sections. There are no we sections in that first missionary journey's narrative. In chapter 13, we do not find the we pronoun referring to the writer and his companion, namely Luke and the Apostle Paul. All right, now, all the names that we have examined, 
these ten names, ostensibly in Christ, turn out to be nine names authentically in Christ, at least as far as we know, one of them a pretender, one of them a counterfeit, namely demons. He will prove that uh, as 2 Timothy 4 has demonstrated. But the in Christ character of these individuals in his name fold this epistle into that paradigm. This epistle is bracketed by those at the beginning who are in Christ, those that are at the end in Christ, Demas accepted, uh, those who are in a community where something uh, transformative is occurring. And we'll uh, enter into that narrative as we go through the epistle uh, in in deliberate style. But before we close this evening, I want you to note one additional factor. Let's consider how many books of the New Testament are drawn into the circle of this epistle of Paul. What I'm thinking about here is let's consider the names at the beginning and end of this epistle and let's think of their attachment with other epistles of Paul or other parts of the New Testament. There are names here that are attached to Gospels, aren't there? And what are they? The Gospel of Mark and Gospel of Luke. So we have two Gospels drawn in to the circle of Paul through the names in this epistle. Okay. What other book do we have drawn in? True. Before we get to the epistles of Paul. Acts. Acts. We have Acts drawn into this circle, do we not? Because Luke is the author of Acts. Right, now we have the epistles of Paul drawn into this. Colossians is one. What other epistles? Philippians. Philippians is another. Why? Because he founded the church. True, but Philippians is a... Prison epistle. What other epistles do we have? Ephesians. So we have Philemon, Colossians, Philippians, and Ephesians. What other letters are drawn in of Paul into this epistle? Romans. Not Romans. Timothy. Timothy. First and second Timothy. What else? Very good. Let's hold off on Peter till we get Paul. Aristarchus. First and Second Thessalonians. All right, so we have eight of Paul's letters drawn into the circle through the names of individuals which are given here. Then somebody was mentioning Peter, First and Second Peter. Added up, thirteen of the twenty-seven books of the New Testament are drawn into the circle of the Apostle Paul in this epistle. Nearly one half of the books of the New, 48%, nearly one half of the books of the New Testament are touched by the names in this letter. We not only are dealing with a circle of those who are en Christo, ostensibly, and actually, we are dealing with those who are drawn into the circle of the revelation which has been given of the Son of God through the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke, the book of Acts, eight of Apostle Paul's epistles, 
and two of Peter's letters. You realize that you're on top of a, shall we say, magnificent explosion of the conjunction of the lives around the revelation of the Word of God that is contained in virtually one half of the New Testament in this little letter. Don't you ignore this little letter. Don't you dare. Paul and the Holy Spirit are drawing you into a much broader circle with the names at the beginning and the names at the end of this magnificent little epistle from his prison in Rome. Any questions? Why wouldn't you include Rome with Romans when he's writing from Rome? That's a good point. You'll, you'll put me over 50%. <laughs> and good for you. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to think about these individuals, most all of whom were drawn into that regenerated relationship with your son. For the work of the Apostle Paul and the gift of your Holy Spirit. We're saddened to read of the career of Demas. Though we realize that this is also part of the counterfeit of the age, our age too, this present evil age. Lord, we are overwhelmed by the breadth and depth of the amount of revelation that is drawn into the names of this tiny epistle. We rejoice in that revelation because we rejoice in him who is the center of it. You have disclosed yourself to us as a loving father because of the redeeming blood of your son. And you have poured out the benefit of that blood and your love through the precious Holy Spirit that comes forth from you and your son. We praise you together, O Lord, and we rejoice in the richness of what we have learned. And we pray, O Lord, that if we go on in this little letter, we rejoice together in the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.